Hello and welcome back to ESPN Scrum Reset for another week. Sam Bruce joined by Christy Doran, who uh, looks like he's doing it tough up at Palm Beach here in Sydney. Uh, not a bad spot to be, mate, on a uh, on an early autumn evening. Not a bad spot at all, uh, and it's glorious. However, Monday, um, it, it is pretty overcast right now, but uh, hopefully there's enough light to come, come, come through for the rest of this podcast. But uh, good, good to be here, and I think we've got a special guest coming up later on, don't we? We, we do. Uh, back from a long hiatus, uh, back in the old uh, ESPN Scrum, five days hosted by the great Andy Withers back in the day, Tom Hamilton. ESPN senior writer in the Hammersmith office in London uh, is going to join us to talk about the uh, the humiliation, I think it was dubbed by the commentators from Twickenham on Saturday night uh, and uh, Le Crunch being Le Crumble for England. Uh, so yes, big uh, drama, dramatic times in the, in the English game. Uh, they might be having a more disastrous uh, season than anyone else, but we will come to that when Tom joins us, mate. For us, uh, all roads lead to Lautoka, Fiji to start. Um, for another phenomenal afternoon of um, Super Rugby Pacific in the heart of the Pacific in Fiji. Uh, the Drill getting up 25-24 over the Crusaders. A raucous crowd once again. Last year, we saw them lose narrowly to both the Highlanders and the Chiefs, but we kind of felt that on the back of a good preseason, a uh, full preseason rather, being based in Fiji for that the lion's share of that, that once they did get back there this season, that they were going to be a different um, team to be reckoned with. Uh, and they got this job done by a late penalty goal after the siren, um, but they were the better team. They butchered a couple of extra tries, didn't they? Uh, Teddy Tillar couldn't hit the backside of a barn from the kicking tee. They certainly made hard work of it, but just amazing scenes once again. Oh, the scenes were extraordinary and we shouldn't be surprised because every time that you and I have ever been to a sevens event or whatever it might be from the flying Fijians to the Drua, you can hear, you can see, you can feel the emotion, the love, the desire, the passion for what is rugby union, but Fiji rugby. And it's so great to see it's, We've been speaking about it for months and, and really years is it is breathed new life into a competition that was increasingly stale, that needed emotion, needed drama, and we're seeing it from a, a weekly basis. And we even saw it against the Waratahs a week earlier at Amy Park where, yes, the scoreline didn't flatter the drawer at the end, but the first 50 minutes, they were superb. And we'll see this site continue to grow, develop and build, and that's just so exciting. But we can't be surprised, Henry. Not at all. Um, a bit of talk out of New Zealand, wondering whether uh, the Crusaders and, and coach Scott Robertson, I guess, underestimated the Drua. Now, we know, as it is in Australia, uh, probably more so in New Zealand, they've got players um, who are being ruled out through All Blacks rest weeks and guys who barely played any rugby on last year's November tour. I think a guy like Billy Harmon, the, the Highlanders captain, who didn't lace a boot for the All Blacks on the spring tour, was in the, involved in the A program and then got called up to join the main squad. He is subject to these protocols as well. So a team like the Crusaders have got a lot of guys to get through. Uh, they can't play more than five consecutive games, I think. So that's how it's being managed. But they still had, you know, plenty of class in this team. They had both Sam Whitelock and and Scott Barrett, two hugely experienced players. Uh, Severus out in the back line. 
David Tervilli started, it went off early, but started at 12. That, that was a big injury blow. But um, as I said before, the Drua were fully deserving of their victory. Um, some uh, some genuine, you know, world, well, not world-class perhaps players, but players who are really going to be on the rise and be a, a threat for this team and, and the Flying Fijians to come, in the years to come rather. Uh, Frank Lamani, uh, the number six to Marnie. I love seeing he's kind of a rangy, uh, back rower, isn't he? A bit taller at there at number six and long strides. Um, Marcy, Yosefa Marcy, who did that beautiful one-handed pickup on halfway and streaked away to score. And um, they've got some real attacking threats in this team, which we have known, but it's about putting the little bit of structure around it, um, getting the set piece right. Um, clearly the goal, click, goal kicking is an issue, but um, this is a massive win for, for coach Mick Byrne as well, isn't it? Huge win for McBurn. I'm, I'm really pleased for him because there was a lot of people coming out of the Wallabies in 2018-19 going, McBurn, seriously, what is he? He's a skills coach. Like, why is he even in this assistant coaching role? What's he know about lineouts? And there are many Wallabies, some that were current, a lot that were recently retired and others that were more, you know, further down that path that were questioning why is this guy in such a senior role? Well, we're seeing a, a, a coach manage to keep what the essence of Fijian rugby is and play unstructured rugby but have success and find little improvements in other areas. But he's done a brilliant job and it's really pleasing to see because he was a guy that could have been lost to Southern Hemisphere rugby, uh, potentially, you know, Australia, Fiji and rugby. He was looking for a job, had no idea what his future was when Michael Checker left, was told extremely little about what future he might have. And when you think about the player drain, well, this is what we're talking about with the coaching drain regarding well, what do these people do when uh, a new regime comes in or a, a new or an old one doesn't quite go as well as it's hoped, what are the other opportunities and where where does this IP then go to? But back to Fijian rugby, so great to see. And, and I tweeted at the time that enough's enough. Stop worrying about, and I know that the finance is a huge aspect of of uh, the sustainability of not just super rugby, but also the rugby championship and indeed international rugby. But more needs to be done to work out how do we get sides like Fiji and Japan that are heavily backed, have fantastic fans that are actually filling up stadiums, unlike Australia and New Zealand, which is half empty most of the time, or even worse. Why aren't we doing more to welcome these rich rugby nations into the rugby championship, make an exciting product, have something that can come up against the six nations? Because currently the rugby championship is extremely stale. No one really cares who wins. There's no meaning whatsoever. And the excuses that people in the suits, the power brokers making these decisions keep coming back to not only the economical uh, point of view, but also from a high performance perspective. Can these sides back it up? Can they do more than a one-off? Well, that is a lazy, ill-thought-out argument because we've seen Argentina's improvement. They've knocked off New Zealand, Australia and England in the last year. But in addition to that, we saw Japan play some of the most exciting rugby in the 2019 World Cup, make a quarterfinal. We've seen Fiji often put it to Australia, who should be at the peak of their powers in the last few World Cups, get a real fright 
But we're seeing now that when sides go up to Fiji, well, hang on a moment, you're going to face a challenge and it's not just on the field, it's, it's the humidity, it's the heat, it's everything that it should be an experience just like what it is when you're playing South Africa on the high belt. You and I have spoken about this quite a bit with Japan the last couple of years, again, after they gave the, the All Blacks a really good run in Yokohama, I think it was last year. Um, and if we don't move soon enough that we're just kicking this can further down the road, aren't we? It's okay. We'll, we'll look at that in another three or four years uh, and then three or four years roll by and oh, we'll look at that in another three or four years. You're right that, uh, you know, the time has come to, to make the move. And, and we've seen, as you mentioned, the improvement of Argentina over the last few years. Sure. They still, you know, have been on the end of the odd hiding here and there, but, but so still are the Wallabies, you know, we, we've seen them batted up in New Zealand plenty of times at Eden park. Um, we've seen New Zealand put South Africa to the sword there at, I think North Harbor about 56 nil a couple yeah. of years ago. So you are even in the six nations on the weekend, which we're going to come to later. France have just beaten England 51, 53 10 right? and, and and Italy for years has been a laughing stock and Scotland has has not won a, a five a six nations ever and they haven't won a five nations for a couple of decades this is not you know high performance can mean lots of different things but what you want is feeling emotion excitement and if you've got two or three sides that are sh- growing but showing different things on a footy field that can just be just as engrossing as to seeing Australia and New Zealand play every third week. And, you know, they need not look too much further than the Six Nations for a setup. Play two two games up front, back-to-back, have a week off, one game on its own, week off, and then finish back-to-back again to round out the tournament. Uh, can you imagine, you know, New Zealand having to go to um, Buenos Aires on the final day or South Africa having to fly to, into Fiji on a stinking hot Saturday afternoon and get the job done, similar to the scenes that we saw yesterday, wouldn't, as you say, add just a complete different, fresh new dimension to the rugby championship, which I think we all agree, um, you know, Argentina have probably been doing the lion's share of the heavy lifting and injecting a bit of um, flair and colour and, and uh, you know, talk, talk a few talking points into it the last few years that, um, you know, Fiji and, and Japan, I'm sure there would be some teething problems, I have no doubt, in the first couple of years, but um, we've got to make the move sooner rather than later, surely. Yeah, here, here. And, and it's, it's, it's 2023, and we've been speaking about this, as you said, for a number of years and kicking it further down the road. It, it's enough and is enough. People like Andy Marinos, who oversaw Sansa for a number of years, I think it was from 2016 through to uh, taking on the Rugby Australia head job in 2021 he's seen rugby in the southern hemisphere firsthand these people should be understanding what the dynamics are what's needed to really reinvigorate the competition down here because the tri-nations is long long gone and that was a successful exciting tournament but that that's a decade ago it's it's moved on and since then I don't know anyone that goes, I'm excited for the TRC, the rugby championship. There's not a single person out there. No, time for a, a bit of a change up. Uh, all right, mate, that's a pretty good wrap of, of the scenes from Lautoka on the weekend. Um, a night earlier, Rebels, uh, great win over the Waratahs, uh, fully deserving as well, you would have to say. Um, Waratahs were hit by a few late injury withdrawals. Uh, Ned Hannigan, uh, Max Jorgensen, and I think Dave Parecki as well. So there was a bit of a reshuffle there, but gee, they just looked out enthused for 
the majority of this match. Had two two tries disallowed in the first half. I thought Gleason potentially had a had a, a cause to have his try awarded, but clearly Namani Nandolo was uh, placed that ball into touch, and I thought that was a poor finish from a winger of his experience and quality. How he didn't drift back in ever so slightly in field um, and use his size to you know barn. Uh, steamroll his way rather over uh, Nick Eust, I, I thought was was fairly ordinary from a winger of his his class. Um, but as I said, Rebels fully deserving of the win uh, and probably just made that performance against the Hurricanes look even better again, didn't it? But it wasn't an aberration. It wasn't a one-off. That This team is is playing some really good rugby, I think. They've got a nice shape about their attack now. Uh, Carter Gordon had his best game, but... I actually thought it was um, Stacey Elliott, number 12, who was the standout for me. Jizzy straightened the attack nicely a few times and and really looks like a, a nice foil for for Gordon at at, uh, at number 12. Yeah, exactly. And there's been a lot made of Carter Gordon's last couple of weeks. I've, I'm a supporter of Carter Gordon. I, I put him in the five players that I thought to watch pre-season. What I want to see is him get rid of kicking balls out in the fall and the little moments that can swing things uh, quite drastically. He, he's definitely getting better and you can see that he's more confident out yep. there. He's able to put things to the side, uh, which is a great aspect of mental fortitude. Um, but I thought also, in addition to Stacey Lee, who has been great at 12, uh, is Reese Hodge has been really good at 13. It, it makes the decisions in years gone by under Dave Rennie not to play him in the midfield all the more staggering, I think. Um, but he, you, you look at his involvements on the weekend and this goes to, this is all about the Rebels full stop, is they took their chances. Pretty much every time that they were near that 22, they came away with points, yep. which is firstly something that Waratahs really drastically need to improve and fix up. But but they managed to exploit Namani Nadola's inability to turn quickly. Uh, he was caught out twice, leading to two tries in less than five minutes. Well-taken try um, to Reese Hodge and then a, a great kick and an even better finish from Lockie Anderson, who last year and in the previous two years had hands like feet. It's a hard thing to say, but it's it's he's come on leaps and bounds and he looks comfortable now in a super rugby environment. He's had good touches, good finishes in the last two weeks. That will only do his confidence the world of good. Um, Ryan Lawrence has seen, fitted back seamlessly at the Rebels as well. But you look at that back row mm. and you think it got like not only the front row is outstanding, but it's got test footballers there and in Matt Gibbon. And I don't know that there was uh Sam Talakai was injured, but you've got guys like Pone Farmacilli and Jordan Walisi coming off the bench. The confidence you get from that, first of all, is huge. But I, I'm really impressed with the balance and with the hard working attitude of guys like Josh Kemeny, uh Brad Wilkin particularly. And then Richard Hardwick, who's always been there, thereabouts. People know that he's always been an on-ball threat, but I think it was Morgan Terranui that said that he's picking his moments better. And you can just see it. And and he's pouncing. And there's almost that Brad Wilkins making the front on shot and then then Hardwick's just coming in there. And, and much like Pocock or Hooper in the past, would be straight on it. And he's made vital turnovers that have just continually, like we saw the Waratahs' attack just stifled. And it just reminded me of the Wallabies' attack over the last five years where they've just been too slow to the breakdown. And whether or not that's an attacking system that's not quite working and there's some t- 
teething issues there, or if it's just the fact that they're too slow and then not reacting quick enough to when either guys get slightly through the defensive line or the fact that they're just getting beaten in contact and going down too early. It's great. It's a great story, Brad Wilkins, isn't it? Jeez, uh, had some horror run, uh, horror luck with injury rather over the last few years. I think it's two or three um, ACL uh, repairs. Um, has really had to, you know, grind his way and and keep the faith, if you like, to to get himself back to a point where he can play not only play Super Rugby but play the way he is and and captaining that team. Uh, while while Rob Leader is still on the way back from his Achilles injury, uh, Josh Kemeny you mentioned as well missed I think just pretty much the majority of last season through through injury as well, which has been a problem for the Rebels and has affected the build up for this season. Which you know if you think you, you could add in um, Andrew Kellaway and Matt Phillip and um, I think this and, and Leader Leader. as well into that yeah. team right now, then you've got a pretty pretty good uh, or very good looking Rebels team, perhaps the the best that they've had potentially in their history. So um, Kellaway, I think, is not far away. Um, and Leota is a little bit further down the track. So if they can, you know, stay fit and, and pick up a, a couple of wins um, away from home, they were very close, um, obviously, in Perth first up. Um, there are greater challenges to come, no doubt, against the Kiwi teams. And I think they've got to go back to to uh, Fiji as well after doing it in the preseason, the Rebels. But um, some good signs in Melbourne, no doubt. Yeah, and before we move on, it's, it's an important, Important and interesting note to observe that the Rebels have kept the vast majority of players for the last couple of years. You look at and you compare that to the Western Force, new coach, new ideas, players that have left before the new coaches come in, and, and you can see that from a cohesion perspective, the Rebels look like they've been together for a while and building together, whereas if you look at the Force, they're playing pretty individualistic, there's not a huge amount of harmony there. They've got, brought a guy who's a fantastic player, like a Raboni, um, coming in. Yep. Yeah, and he's starting at number eight when he was at the Waratahs B-side two weeks ago. The Rebels have just managing to go, you know what, it's not always about bringing the headline play or even a bunch of reasonable players. It's about working what you've got with building on it, trying to get more and more players coming through their club system that are homegrown talents and then integrating them slowly. I'm really impressed with what the Rebels are doing. And even guys, you look at their coaching team, they've got three actually head super rugby head coaches that are in their, in their stable there. You've got Nick Stiles, who's the general manager, who still works with the scrum. Tim Sampson's come across from the Western Force, and you can just see that the the maturity, perhaps the blossoming of ideas and discussion, but it doesn't seem like anyone's competing for each other's role, and that's really important too. Happy environment from CEO, coaching staff through the captaincy. We've heard John Eels and John O'Neill and people like that talk about it in the past. It's very, very important, and we're seeing that now. Conversely, uh, some real issues for the Waratahs on top of um, those injuries. Uh, they look, you know, we're out enthused. I thought they looked disjointed uh, for much of that match. Uh, got themselves back into it with two scores after two tries after half half time. But they're now one and two with games away to the Hurricanes and at home against the Chiefs in the next two weeks. Now, it'll be a brave man to suggest they're not going to be one and four um, after the first five weeks of the season and any hope of them probably making that top four goal, which, um, you know, everyone from 
member number 40 to right up to the CEO in the squad, sorry, number 40 player in the squad right through to CEO Paul Dawn was was on notice saying, yep, this is this is the goal. This is what we want to achieve. This is what we think we should achieve with the quality we've got here. So um, I don't think their season's on the line this week, but certainly, you know, they're under massive pressure to, to find... Um, I don't even think their their win over the drill was all that good. Really, they they played a decent forty minutes and managed to get on top of the drill in that second half. But um, apart from a few fleeting moments against the Brumbies in in round one, um, they're not living up to expectation. No, they're not, and that's important. I think they would accept that that's how they feel about it too. And if you look further beyond both the Hurricanes and the Chiefs, they then have to go down to Canberra to play the Brumbies. Uh, there's a, a Western Force side that they'll come up against, and then the Blues. It's uh, you're playing there four of the best five sides at the moment. The Crusaders obviously aren't in that list there, but wow, good luck! Yeah. And they will need out of those five games uh, four very very difficult. They would want at least two. They've got a jag one win probably from the next two, uh, and you're looking. Do they have it in the roster? Yes, they do. Are they light up front? Probably. Angus Bell's injury spent huge, particularly just around their attack structure, but also comes at peacetime, having to get young guys coming through there who are probably a bit early, as Angus Bell, to be fair, is too. But, yeah, we may mention about the attacking breakdown issues, but Darren Coleman's got big selection issues too. I've, you know, Michael Hooper started slowly. Can like if if I'm Darren Coleman, I'm starting Charlie Gamble at seven this weekend with Michael Hooper coming off the bench. Uh, I think Hoops needs to be managed. I think he started the year slowly. Why that is, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it's a long, long year, and yes, he's going to have another child. I think in April. Uh, so they'll be wanting to squeeze the lemon out of Michael Hooper before he might have a week or two off around that time. But Charlie Gamble brought a bit off the bench last week against the Rebels. Um, you look at the 10 situation, is Ben Donaldson playing out of position at fullback? Is he a fullback? Can you both have him and Tane Edmund playing together? Where does Max Jorgensen finish, uh, uh, fit into this? Is he Parisi started the year slowly? Um, you know, guys like Masessi, Tupolotu, can't get a crack at the moment, but looks very good in the trial matches. Defensively, looks quite strong too. And that's been a bit of a shortcoming of Parisi over the last couple of weeks. So good luck trying to work out all, all of that into a, a side, but they've got to fix it very, very quickly. Otherwise, the Hurricanes that are going to welcome back Artie Sevilla this weekend could be in the, in the Tars' sights. Yeah, some big decisions to be made there. A bit of talk that uh, Jorgensen might come in at 15 this week. So we'll wait and uh, wait for a team list on Wednesday. Uh, all right, mate, uh, rounding out. Well, we know the foursome Moana game was late Saturday night. I know you sat up through that. I must admit I went to bed at halftime because um, I'd had enough. Uh, but let's talk about the Reds and the Brumbies. Um, it kind of, uh, the Brumbies, uh, they didn't win this game that comprehensively. They didn't, I didn't think they played all that well. But for me, I was watching it and thinking, they're just not going to lose this game. Now, if I'm watching that as a punter, um, the feeling that they must have when they are in it to have that self-belief and that control. Um, as I said, I don't think they played that well. I don't think the Reds played that well either. It wasn't a great game of footy. But 
they just kind of put the squeeze on teams, don't they? Um, they strangled the Waratahs in Sydney. I think they strangled the Blues last week, and they've done it three weeks in a row now with the Reds as well. So uh, what did you take out of this game? I think the big thing for me in the battle of the fullbacks is that I think Tom Wright certainly edged Jordan Pattaya. Uh, I don't know that Tom Wright is anywhere near the finished product just yet, but I'm convinced that Geordie Pattaya is, is not a fullback. Interesting, yeah. Uh, look, Tom Wright's 25 and he's a former 5'8". Uh, we've got, he's got, we've, we've spoken about his ball skills in the past. Look, are either of them genuine fullbacks? That's a, it's a question worth asking. Pataya's uh, definitely a back three player at the moment. I think he could certainly go into a, an outside centre like Rico Ioani's doing very well at the moment. Uh as he struggled, through, I thought, like he had two great moments where he scores tries and both of them were really, really special in their own right. But I love the attacking um, the attacking skill, but also the desire, the decision-making from James O'Connor to go, you know what, Jordan Bataille is one of the best in the year in the game. I'm going to dink this over and put it on a string and I'm going to back Bataille to get over a very small Brumby's back three. Tom Wright must be the tallest, who's about no more than six foot. You compare that to Jordy Pataille, he's getting over him every day. In addition to that, guys like Andy Muirhead or or Corey Tool, who's, yep. who's certainly shorter. So very smart, educated there. But Pataille has dropped a couple of balls earlier in the game, perhaps caught out of position. There's still a little bit of a, like a kicking technique. He can boom it. He can whack it down the field. He doesn't give off that confidence that he's an assured kicker, that's for sure. Um, I think Wright looks more settled, more comfortable there. Oh, the, the other couple of big talking points coming out of that were Rory Scott's a, a real find, and he's not new. He's been in that Brumby system for a while, but he's starting to shine at seven. Um, Lockie Lonigan, I think, continues to improve. He's a guy that I didn't necessarily thought think was going to be in this Wallabies squad for a World Cup, but he continues to grow. And I'm liking, we know that he can finish tries, but he also gets on the ball. He's a level head. You just see that he loves it and he's getting bigger, filling out, scrummaging better, line out is stronger. Um, But the the tens, wasn't that interesting when we saw not even, Noel Oloseo played, I think, at the 80 minutes was probably a tad unfortunate not to seal the, the game with a match-winning try. Uh, as it turned out, it, it wasn't needed. But he, I think, had a pretty good game um, in, in in the 10 jersey. But we saw James O'Connor return. And, yep. yes, we had spoken highly of Tom Limer and his skill set, but he's still 19, and that's fine. Let him continue to grow. I still want to see 15, 20 minutes of Liner most weeks. But I think James O'Connor brought out the best in those around him. His skill set's looking sharp, the, the, the kicking game. He looks like he's got time, but he also, just the guys around him, it seemed like he brought out confidence in others around them. It, it, did you get that sense too? There was certainly, you know, a, both a spark and a, um, a a real, I guess, more of a flow to their attack when, when James O'Connor came in. We know Tom Liner's style is to kind of sit a little Sort of sit a little bit further back in the pocket, play more of a traditional uh, English number ten game, which is you know where he's come from and where he's cut his teeth, playing schoolboy and club footy in England. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. But I mean, uh, you were speaking a lot about James O'Connor's just lacking that extra yard of pace. Clearly, he's not 18, 19, 20 anymore when he really did have that 
electric turn of foot, but he looked to have that just a little bit of sharpness back in his, his step again. Uh, clearly we need to see it um, from the, the opening whistle. And I, I think Brad Thorne will probably look to, to give him a start um, this weekend, uh, but it was a, it was a nice return or a nice, you know, another second straight uh, week off the bench for, for JOC. And um, you know, he's, He's going to be one of these players we're going to talk a lot about this year, aren't we, with with Eddie Jones and the Wallabies and which one of these, you know, these senior guys are, are going to wind up even in his wound wind, going to wind up in uh, in his squad um, from, a, from a playmaking perspective. So, uh, yeah, but I, I agree. I thought that uh, the Reds were a different team when he came on. Okay, a couple of things. We've got the, the Reds have got, VJ Drewer in Brisbane this week. If if you're Brad Thorne, you're playing James O'Connor every day of the week. We know that physically they'll come at Tom Liner really hard, but I don't see an issue with Tom Liner coming off the bench with 20 to go against VG because the sting would have been taken yep. out of the Fijians. But question without notice, we know that Eddie Jones has said that he wants to have three tens. He said on uh, an offsiders program, he said Quade Cooper may, may be one of them. And then the two other were wide open. Question without notice is what are your power rankings at the moment with the number 10 position, assuming that both Quade Cooper and uh, is fit and the eligibility laws still allow for perhaps three, maybe even as many as five overseas picks, which could potentially bring in guys like Bernard Foley as well. It's a good question without notice. Um, look, uh, if, if we're saying that Quaid is in there or, or certainly um, potentially not number one, I, I would have Noah in there. Um, and then I would probably have Bernard Foley at this point as well. I saw enough in Bernie last year to think that he still had something to to offer the Wallabies at the World Cup. Um, I thought he was excellent in Melbourne um, and that dramatic Bledisloe encounter, probably less so the following week, but, you know, many of Wallabies crashed and burned at Eden Park. Um, I thought he was good again in a couple of games during the spring tour. So uh, I think they're your three at this point. The intriguing one is is Ben Donaldson, isn't it, really? I, and we have to wonder when he's going to get a crack at number 10, potentially ahead of Tane Ed Medley. No, he started that final game against... Wales of the spring tour um, had a, had a pretty reasonable night out. Um, and you've got to wonder, you know, is he frustrated about playing fullback at the moment? Um, he, the Waratah situation, it's nothing new. They've got Will Harrison there as well, who I think played on the weekend in the, the B team and um, unfortunately picked up another injury. So this is an issue they've been dealing with and, and brings into, you know, uh, discussions, talk of, of centralization in Australian rugby and whether one of these guys should be encouraged at least to go off and, and be playing at um, another franchise. So he's the one, he's the outlier for me. Um, but I, I would think at this stage, I would have Quaid, Noah and, and Bernard Foley with O'Connor and um, Ben Donaldson as those guys that I want to see more of in the uh, in the coming four to six weeks. Yeah, I, I couldn't say it any better. I don't think James O'Connor is there yet, but there's going to be injuries and we know that. And Absolutely. That's, that that's going to happen. So you can't really rule anyone out at the moment. I think the the twenty tests or so that Noah Lawless area has had is invaluable at this time of year. You know that this guy can do it. He's won test matches, and I, I just liked what I saw from him on the weekend. And if you're thinking about combinations, and this is why I wouldn't rule out O'Connor either. Is O'Connor's got a combo with guys like Tate McDermott and Hunter Paisami, and if they're going to feature prominently. 
O'Connor's stocks then just help, just helps that they're there, that they know each other. Guys like Fraser McWright and Harry Wilson too. And similarly with Noel Olesio, knowing that Nick White's going to be there, knowing that Tom Wright's going to be there. Um, that Those sorts of things can't be understated because it's just the understanding of what people do, when they do it, how they feel, what makes people tick, and just a positive vibe if you're friends with them and you're working with each other week in, week out. So watch this space in the 10 jersey. It's it's fascinating and it's going to continue to talk. We're going to continue to talk about it. Bernard Foley is the interesting one. And one thing that I can say is that Eddie Jones is speaking to has been speaking to a lot of senior players, not all of them, but some of them. And it's all about the mental strength at the moment, the mental uh uh, it was described to me as one wallaby as being a, a, not mental gains or anything, but trying to untap what's been missing for recent years. Because as we all know, the wallabies have missed out on all these games by a couple of points, the last minute sort of plays, not taking their opportunities. So that's, I think, resonated with a lot of the senior wallabies that he's been speaking to. Just before we wrap up uh, Super Rugby for the weekend, get Tom in to talk some Six Nations, uh, a bit of contract news uh, over the last uh, 48 hours. Yeah, so Len Ikatau, who whose future was up for discussion, entertaining overseas deals, he's been one of the least remunerated players, given the fact that when he signed a deal with the Brumbies, he was, frankly, a bit of a nobody. He wasn't a teenage sensation, but he's now become one of the most reliable Wallabies out there. He's still going to be on peanuts really by comparison to his Wallaby teammates this year but it looks like he will have free signed for an extra two years uh, certainly wants to be part of the 27 World Cup campaign but could consider it a sabbatical so to speak in 26 an overseas option there um, and Tom Wright I believe he's getting closer to having had a breakthrough with his negotiations Lots of these contracts have been stalled in recent months due to the changes of the Wallabies coach and certainly around the CBA uh, and and with private equity, whether or not things needed to change, not that it's here yet, but whether or not things needed to change regarding uh, contracts going forward, bonuses, et cetera, et cetera. So good news for the Brumbies and, and for the Wallabies. All right. Well, welcome uh, back to the pod for um, the first time in a long while. Tom Hamilton, uh, ESPN senior writer in the Hammersmith office in London, mate. Um, we had to get you on this week, given what happened at Twickenham on Saturday night, not to gloat in, in the English misery by any stretch of the imagination, but to just as a starting point, um, take us inside Twickenham on on Saturday night, because um, I know you won't have had a night there like that. Um, humiliation, embarrassment, and annihilation, uh, all words used to describe the, the English performance. Um, just, uh, yeah, take us through what went down. So, yeah, I, I guess it takes an English capitulation to get me invited back, eh? I'll see how this goes. Right. Um, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, it was so bizarre, because apart from like five minutes at the start of the second half where England scored, they were completely like outclassed, like to another level which we haven't seen in so so long. Like not since probably the days of sort of like Andy Robinson era, like back in two thousand and six. Like it was, it was brutal. And the thing was, nothing they could do could stop it purely because on several levels there was the precision of France, the speed at which they were moving the ball, the fact that they won virtually every single collision. Like they were so much more physical, so much quicker than England. Every single thing they were doing that. 
there was nothing England could do. And so it was just like watching. It was almost like, honestly, the, the second half of the Man United game against Liverpool, like where a team just crumbled and there was nothing, there was no foothold, no substitution could get them anywhere near it. So, it, I mean, when Steve Borthwick took on the job back in um, December, one of the first things he said was that he wanted this team to reconnect with the fans. And I think above all, apart from the poor showing, the fact they were outclassed, I think that's something he can work on, but he would have been... And he cares deeply. He's a really good bloke. He would have seen the fans leaving 10, 15 minutes before the end, trying to get to back home, get to Richmond Station, Twickenham Station, whatever. They'd had enough. And I think that sort of, I guess, apathy towards the team would have hurt him the most. It shows how much work they've got to do on several levels, but the sight of the team, of the sorry, of the fans leaving, that's going to sting. But, I mean, above all, I think we also, in the midst of it, despite the... Uh, the English tears, you have to pay tribute to France, they're unbelievable. And I mean, the All Blacks coaches were in the crowd. They'd have seen Peno, they'd have seen, you know, Dupont, who's just on another level, but they'd have seen that back row. They've seen everything like they've got the fourth choice tight head. They've got so many players injured as well. It's scary. And I think everyone would have watched that and thought, you know what, if France can maintain this level, which is difficult, then they're going to be a hell of a team to beat come September. Um, I mean, that's before we even get onto Ireland, but. Yeah, it was it was a bizarre day. It really was, and I think when we saw Marcus Smith at ten, I thought there was a feeling that that uh, I mean, there was a little bit of optimism in around Twickenham. I mean, how foolish we all were. Yeah, let's talk about that decision. Um, I, I've read a few bits and pieces, listened to a couple of podcasts since the weekend, suggesting that maybe this was Borthwick saying, "Righto, we've got to see what Marcus Smith has got." Um, is that is the weekend's result? Is that now as a result? that it for Marcus Smith. We know George Ford is um, getting back to, he was in the squad last week, I think, wasn't he? He was brought in and then uh, sent back to to Leicester again. Um, is he looming as the man to, to solve this conundrum, I guess, that England have had first under Eddie Jones and now under Steve Borthwick that I don't think Owen Farrell is quite the player he was three or four years ago. Marcus Smith, um, it was the jury was out on whether those two could play together is George Ford the missing link for England playing, I guess, that classic style of English rugby, but also bringing the best out of Owen Farrell at number 12 as well? Yeah, I think so. And I think, first of all, I think it was probably unfair to judge Marcus Smith on Saturday. He was behind a pack which completely splintered. So he never really had a chance to to put England on the front foot. And he that's what he needs. Like, he needs a pack moving forward and England simply weren't. So... I think it's maybe a little bit unfair to judge him on that. It wasn't really a fair trial, but I think George Ford's a really good point. And he, um, so he moved to Sale over the summer, and because he's been injured since that Premiership final, we've only seen him for a, a few glimpses here and there. So I think he's probably the the long-standing option at ten for England. I could see Smith being used as an impact sub, but Ford, I mean, he was um, central to the way that Borthwick uh, got Leicester back together when he was there in charge. He plays exactly the way that he wants, you know, Borthwick team to play, like kicking deep, like measured kicking and being able to mix things up while also then attacking the ball in hand. Um, so I think he's probably the long-term answer. But beyond that, I mean, it's just, this is the, one of the things with English rugby. I think I was listening to Henry Slade the other day and he's had 11 different centre partnerships since he's played for England. I mean, that's how he meant to build any continuity off the back of that. It's, it just doesn't work. So you're looking at, say, for example, on the other hand, look at Scotland. They've had the same backs for the last four games running, same group of backs. And they've got, you know, they've now found their centre partnership in Tupelotto and um, and Hugh Jones. So it's, I think that's where England are. And 
it's a really tough time for Borthwick. He didn't want to take the job now. Like he he was the long-term successor to Eddie. He was meant to be coming along after this World Cup. He'd have had a clean hit. He'd had four years of a build-up, but he's trying to do that in nine months. And whenever you're going to change a coach, you're not going to be changing a coach nine months out before a World Cup if everything's going right. So he's come in and it's, you know, there are some sort of semblance and similarities to when he took over Leicester. Um, they went through a few brutal days early on, but, you know, I was reading this morning, Clive Woodward talking about that tour of hell in 98. And I guess there are similarities here. He'll be finding out who can play test rugby and who can't. And that's brutal. You only get a handful of test games a year to prove it. And I think for some, Saturday would have been a brutal wake-up call. But for Borthwick, this is part of a bigger picture. I think what we'll see is he's going to start looking towards the short, medium and long term. And I think in the short and medium term, it's definitely George Ford at 10. And I think I wouldn't be surprised to see Manu back in the midfield for Saturday as well. There's a lot to digest there, uh, Tommy, I can tell you that. What was really interesting was was the uh, the return of Jonathan Danton at 12 for France. Mm. He completely changed the picture for France. They already, they're strong on the ball, but when you've got a guy in the midfield who can do that, can stifle any form of back line kind of move, attack, drive, um, he, he was supreme. He, in my opinion, was, was the player of the game that changed the match. It's it's interesting you're talking about Marcus Smith and George Ford. Marcus Smith was probably one of the best players out there, I thought. He was the only guy that really looked like managing to make the line break. He also made a couple. Uh, is his style of rugby conducive to a Steve Borthwick side? Perhaps not. And it's a million-dollar question. Um, the question I've got to ask is, is, and you, you made mention of Eddie Jones, you made mention of uh, a very short lead in only what, seven months now until the World Cup, uh, six months until the World Cup, uh, even less than that, five months. It's rapidly approaching, isn't it? But do you? is there a sense that, oh, have we got this right in terms of binning Eddie Jones, knowing that his World Cup record is, is, is what it is? And the fact that when Eddie took over England in 2016, they managed to shore up things pretty quickly, make very few changes, captaincy change, and all of a sudden, the, the team that was losing matches started winning. Mm. It's difficult. Like, that's a million-dollar question, right? I'm. There were certain people in Twickenham on Saturday, fans and you know old internationals alike, saying, do we get it right? Or did the RFU get it right when they uh, binned Eddie? And to be honest, the RFU haven't got many things right recently. So I think on this occasion, look, you just don't know. You've got absolutely no idea. I think Borthwick, in terms of the long-standing health of English rugby, Borthwick is the right man to take this forward. There's absolutely no doubt about that, and they have to trust him. But equally, the system around both Eddie and the system around Borthwick is not conducive to providing a winning England team. Like the link up with the clubs no. is all over the place. Like the pathways are all over the place. Um, the, the, the lack of depth in certain positions, like along the front row at number eight, at number twelve, and as you say. Jonathan Dante, right, he's been out for so long and he comes back. France have continued winning without him. He comes back and they go up another level. He's like a fourth-back rower. He's unbelievable. Like He's so such a clever player. England haven't got a player like that. So for all the talk of the richest union in the world, the biggest player pool, etc., there's absolutely no way that is turning into anything resembling a successful team on the pitch. So they have to give Borthwick the licence to make the changes he needs. Now, he's already start, starting to make noises around perhaps... Now is the time to let the players play in France. And with the lack of money in the English game, after this World Cup, you're already seeing the likes of Luke Cowan-Dickey, Sam Simmons, 
and others, David Ribbons perhaps, going to France. Like Jack Willis is at Toulouse and has improved as a player. Tom Willis is at Toulouse. Jack, Jack um, Noel, another one. Jack Noel. You're seeing Zach Mercer's over there, but he's coming back soon. I mean, they have to stop this sort of, this English presumption at the higher levels that they what they do is right, or what they do, sorry, is in their own mind is the only way forward because they've got to broaden their horizons. And I think whether it comes back to Eddie or Steve Borthwick, Borthwick's the man, um, definitely the man to take England into the World Cup after next. The execution of it was sloppy. There's no way that, in my mind, they should have got rid of Eddie Jones when they did. If they were going to get rid of Eddie Jones, they should have done it 18 months ago because giving nine months to Borthwick before a World Cup is farcical. Um, so they should have either stuck to their guns and then what will be will be because what was the worst case scenario? You're going to have a disastrous World Cup. Well, off the back of off the back of Saturday, no one's tipping England to win the World Cup now. So that hasn't changed, has it? So I think, look, long and short of it, it's happened. I think for me, the timing of the Eddie Jones dismissal was wrong. Um, but equally, Borthwick is definitely the right man now and for the future of English rugby. He just needs to be given the keys to lead this to some sort of resemblance of success. And equally, people at the RFU have to be accountable for the lack of the pathway working and the situation they're in. Yeah, we, we did hear Clive Woodward talk about that in his column for the Daily Mail too. Uh, it, it's interesting though, Steve Borthwick, first year international coach, and he's we know he's been an assistant for a long while, but it's different uh, one year as a club head coach into the England head coach, it's a huge step up. You know, Michael Checker, when he became the Wallabies head coach, mm-hmm. had been a head coach for a number of years, and not only at the Waratahs, but at Leinster and uh, in Stade Francais. So reading, rebuilding missions all over the place. Sam, what, what do you think? When you're looking at this English side, can you see elements? And yes, a lot can happen. And it's probably better to experiment a little bit at this stage rather than in six months' time and not knowing who your best hand is. But is this element of doubt clouding this English side and could it continue to the detriment of what not only only Steve Borthwick's trying to achieve long-term, but for the short-term, add just elements of doubt, thinking, did we get this right? I think the worst thing that ever happened to this to the England setup was uh, Eddie Jones and England winning that third test in Sydney last year. Um, I think if they, I think if they, if England loses that test, then that's the perfect opportunity for the RFU to move on Jones. Steve Borthwick gets uh, the Autumn Nation series. He gets four tests there to kind of get his players together for the first time, not two and a half weeks as, or whatever it was before the Six Nations this time around. Um, gets a look at them there. Um, has these games where he perhaps on the weekend where he throws Marcus Smith in there um, and benches Owen Farrell and, and gets a look at that then rather than now in the Six Nations, which carries so much more value than the Autumn Nation tests do. And we know um, they, they drew with the All Blacks, but were well beaten by South Africa and, and beaten by Argentina as well. So look, I, I, I look back on, on history now and think, wow, um, if I'm an Englishman, I kind of resent them getting over the line at the SCG that night. Um, on the flip side, I think back to the game in Oida uh, when they so comprehensively smashed the Wallabies in that quarterfinal. Um, the power game that was just so complete. Um, Kyle Sinclair hitting that ball, that flat ball from Owen Farrell going through and running over the top of Kirtley Beale and, and the Wallabies having absolutely no answer for that English performance that night. Uh, again, they repeated that when they beat the All Blacks a week later and then we know what happened in the final. Um, I think the players are are still there. You, you can't have the resources that England do and not 
have a quality 15 somewhere in there. I don't think Steve Borthwick knows exactly who or, or what that is at this point in time. Um, and he's fast running out of, of days to to get together, but they are on the softer side of the draw, aren't they? Like the Wallabies, like Australia, mm-hmm. um, which we, we've spoken about the debacle that is world rugby doing this draw back in 2020 um, over and over again, but I'll, I'll mention it again now. Um, they've only got a, you know, he's got a little bit more time on his side than perhaps people think. I, I don't think Japan are going to worry them. So you've got to play, you know, one decent game of rugby to get beyond Argentina and your, your pool games are done and you top the pool. Then, you know, you build a little bit of momentum, um, you work out what your best team is by that stage and, you, and you're into a quarterfinal against, you know, Australia or Wales, probably potentially Fiji if, if Wales continue to play like they are. Um, but yeah, look, I, I feel for Steve Borthwick. It, it's been thrown a, a massive hospital pass, isn't it really? You know, he's, uh, he's nine months, not even to, to get a team that was so, you know, bedded in. It clearly lost its way under Eddie Jones. I don't think there was any doubt about that. And the, the place probably needed a, a freshen up, but um, I don't envy the position that Steve Borthwick's in, that's for sure. It's a hell of a rebuilding mission, Tom. How big is this weekend's game in, in Dublin? The last match, Ireland, of course, going for a grand slam. Is it significant ahead of the World Cup for England? Uh, who's it more significant for, Ireland or England? Question. I think just, just to go back on one bit, there is something interesting happening after the Six Nations, which is... The RFU, well, Borthwick, I think it's fair to say, not the RFU, Borthwick, bringing in Alan Walters, his fitness guru from the Tigers. Who, he was the man who masterminded the Springboks in 2019. So he is so highly regarded that that pre-World Cup conditioning camp is going to be key. And I think that's when we're going to actually see behind closed doors, that's when England will be able to actually sort themselves out. And I think the appointments that Borthwick's making, bringing in Wigglesworth, it's expected that perhaps he's going to bring in a scrum coach, which could be Ian Peel, the, the Saracens guy, and then maybe he keeps Nick Evans. That's a really good coaching setup. You've got so many different people there, um, sorry, different types of coaches there, different people in terms of how they communicate and how they view the game. And I, I think that's going to be fascinating to see how he does. And as you say, the, the farcical nature of the World Cup draw means that England really only have to beat Argentina or Japan lightly as things stand. I mean, who knows? God, I mean, it's so unpredictable. Who knows what might happen? But on the face of it, on the being on the sort of the softer side of the draw, you could easily see England in the semi-finals, which is ridiculous considering how they played, how Saturday went down. But looking ahead to Ireland, I mean, Ireland yesterday against Scotland, Ireland had was it three injuries in the first half. Then they lost a replacement hooker. They ended up with Van der Fleer, the world's best player, throwing in. They had Kean Healy hooking, and yet they still just didn't blink. Like they did not, you saw in the box, Andy Farrell had one of those, those biros with like the four different color pens, you know, where you click them down if you want to have like <laughs> Old school. red, blue. Yeah. And that didn't even like, he was just holding it loosely in his hand. There's no stress. We got this lads. Like they are so confident in their system and confident in how they are and who, how they're playing the players at their disposal that it's hard to see anything other than an Irish win. Now, I think from an England point of view, the key is that they keep in sort of, keep in the mix and be in the mix with 70 minutes. Make make Ireland sweat a little bit. I think I fully expect Ireland to win and win the Grand Slam. And then they continue riding this wave into the World Cup. And, and I think this is a different Irish team to the one we've seen before. It's not one I can't see them choking like they have done in the past, where they sort of run into something in panic. It, Andy Farrell just won't let that happen. This group of players won't let that happen. Um, 
So we'll revisit that statement in about six months' time once they get knocked out of the quarters, right? But no, I think they'll I think they'll be making a dent in the tournament. They're a really, really good team. And so from an English point of view, you just want to see improvement. I think, look, they've won. This, is the, this will be the third Six Nations running where they've only won two games. And from any union standpoint, that's not good enough. So for Borthwick, he will, and the players, someone like Owen Farrell is going to absolutely relish this week, where they've already been written off. No one gives them a hope in hell. It's a free hit. And from chatting to Irish colleagues and uh, rugby players over there, they're nervous now of England. They're expecting some sort of fight back. And that's the weird thing about sport, because logic and reason and everything suggests that Ireland should should ease past England on Saturday. But um, England, they're going to be wounded. You can see in the, in the mix zone after the game, like Owen Farrell was just sort of like, bemused at what happened, didn't really have any answers. Jamie George, always such a great communicator. He wears his heart on his sleeve. Again, he just wasn't quite sure. They haven't been in this situation with England. They've had some really painful defeats in the past, but nothing like this. So I think from looking at it, I think it's an important game for both, but um, I fully expect it to go to form. Uh, but from an English point of view, if they can get within five points at the end, that's pretty, it's probably a pretty good result. If they make them a little bit nervous in Dublin on St. Patrick's Day, then um, that's not a bad return. Uh, so I think that's probably the, the realistic expectations around the game. But even with Ireland, with all their injuries and all their, you know, the players they've missed and all the adversity they've had to get through in the Six Nations, they just, nothing seems to make them sort of go off their stride at all. They're, they're a pretty remarkable team. Final question, Thomas, before we we wrap up. Um, if we think ahead to the final weekend of the Rugby World Cup, Saturday night at the Stade de France, we've got France and Ireland. Uh, where's your money going? Still Ireland, I think. If Ireland have a fully fit team, I think like the Six Nations, they've been without Furlong, they've been without uh, Gibson Park for so much of it, and then they lost Tyburn yesterday, they lost Caelan Doris early on, they lost Sheehan, they lost Ian Henderson, they keep on going. I still think Ireland might just have too much, and that Stade de France crowd, if something goes wrong early on, they turn pretty quickly, but look, that, that France team's remarkable, like, even that back row and the way they played, and these guys, like the replacements coming in, the players they were without, they kept on going, kept on driving. Um, I still think Ireland. Oh, have I panicked? No, I'm still I'm sticking with Ireland. I'm sticking with Ireland. I think. However, <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised with a, with a caveat caveat of a different way, and yeah. it ends up being South Africa. No, uh, I think it's yeah for me. Yeah, I think Ireland's still just. However, <laughs> however. <laughs> There's a lot of howevers. I'll tell you what, Sam, I'll save you the breath of asking the same question. Uh, I'm not sure if you were going to ask me that, but I, I was, I'm saying France, and I'm saying France because they've got a couple of the world-best players in various positions, none other, more so rather than Anton Dupont. He is so, so good. I think he's by far the best player, and it's pretty difficult to determine who is the best player given that the positions are so vastly different. But... You look at how far ahead I think Anton Dupont is from any other halfback in the world at the moment, and I think he learn a bit more, a bit like when Bradman was just regarded as so much more superior because his average was double anyone else's. I just think that Dupont, what he's got at the moment, the ball and the string, he's able to defend like he did in Ireland by you know, denying tries to Mac Hanson. He's able to kick off both feet, pass, run. He's the complete package. And you look at that, Toulouse, there was 11 players from that Toulouse side that was in the French side on the, on the weekend. They've almost got a Leinster in themselves and they've won big games. They've won European Champions Cups recently. Those are 
big, big games and big players are delivering in big games, which gives me the confidence that France can do it on home soil. Yes, there's going to be pressure, but they're used to it every week. Well, I look forward to uh, debating that one further with you blokes over at Cronenberg, uh, 1664, uh, somewhere uh, in uh, overlooking a, you know, a nice uh, bistro or a, or uh, a river somewhere. Gents, um, thanks very much, Thomas. Great to have you back on, mate. I really appreciate the time up there early Monday morning in London. Uh, let's do it again soon. Christy, as ever, mate, um, thanks for your time. And uh, everyone else, we'll talk to you in seven days' time. Cheers. Cheers.